This trip through Telehell is presented by The Skin Store. For over 20 years, The Skin Store has been the number one destination for premium skin care, hair care, and beauty products. With over 8,000 different products from 300 different brands, The Skin Store has you covered for all your hair, cosmetics, supplements, and of course, skin care needs. Find your favorite brands like Elta MD, New Face, Olaplex, and more all in one place with gifts with every purchase. Right now, The Skin Store is offering our listeners 20% off your next purchase by using the code POD. That's P-O-D for 20% off your next purchase at skinstore.com slash pod.list. Skin Store. Have the confidence to tackle the day ahead. Exclusions apply. And now, just because you didn't drink all of your milk, this is Telehell. When one reaches a certain age, you almost immediately pine for the period in your life sometime between the start of high school and the end of college that are often considered the best years of your lives. That kind of pining is known by several terms. Memory lane, wistfulness, flashbacking. But no matter what you call it, it all boils down to one word. Nostalgia. People like to look back at their past because... They either want to see how far they've come since then, or, if you're a pessimist, you keep revisiting what happened in your past to turn you from captain of the football team to a part-time worker at a car wash. At the same time, the past is often viewed with proverbial rose-colored glasses, but as Lisa Kudrow warned us in her final appearance on BoJack Horseman, You know, it's funny. When you look at someone through rose-colored glasses, all the red flags just look like flags. Which brings us to what I hope is going to be an ongoing feature around here. It's time for... Wheel of Fox Failures! Picture, if you will, a wheel containing the names of all the shows from the Fox network that lasted up to one season or less. Where the wheel stops, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So, let's give it a big heave and... Action, fast lane, Costello, Lone Gunman, A Minute with Stan American Embassy, Normal Ohio, Pasadena, That 80 Show... This January, That 80s Show, a new comedy series coming this January to Fox. For many, the 1980s were the decade of decadence. But in the case of this show, there's 80s excess, and then there's 80s excessiveness. It's a show that's not going to need any leg warmers. In Hell. There's an old standard rule when it comes to pining towards things that are nostalgic, that usually the point of remembrance happens within a 20-year time frame of the decade that you're currently in. For example, back in the 1970s, people were feeling nostalgic about the 1950s. 
The movie American Graffiti, and especially shows like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, helped amplify those moments. The same thing can be said for adults of the 1980s feeling the same way towards the 60s, with shows like The Wonder Years and, to a far different extreme, China Beach and Tour of Duty helping those grown-ups reflect in that regard. And the same can be said for adults of the 1990s, who came of age during the 70s, not just with fashions of that era making a comeback, but also this long-running show helping to put an exclamation mark on things. In 1998, with the Fox Network just over 10 years old, what would turn out to be one of their longest-lasting success stories debuted in the form of That 70s Show. Created by the team of stand-up comedian Mark Brazil and long-running husband-and-wife writing duo Bonnie and Terry Turner, That 70s Show did for the 70s what Happy Days did for the 1950s, up to and including being consistently good in the ratings and having a strong enough fan base, despite only winning one Emmy Award for costumes in 1999. The show eventually came to an end after eight years in 2006, and is now enjoying a peaceful retirement on the rerun circuit in spite of one of the show's cast members getting himself into a a lot of trouble these days. But that's not why we're here. With the show as successful as it was in its early years, it didn't take long for the Fox Network to practically hand everybody a blank check to keep pumping out season after season of bell-bottomed polyester ways to have a nice day. So big was the show's success that creator Mark Brazil once quipped that if the show went on for too long, they would eventually call themselves That 80s Show. Little did Brazil realize that he may have come up with a self-fulfilling prophecy. At the beginning of their fourth season, the show's writers and producers decided to experiment a little bit. By this point in the show, our two main characters of Eric Foreman and Donna Pinciotti decided to split up. For reasons. I'm not doing an entire series biography. In the show's fourth season premiere, a mopey Eric tries to imagine what his life would be like if he and Donna never had their first kiss. Enter Newman from Seinfeld as Eric's guardian angel, and we take off on one of the few variations of It's a Wonderful Life that I actually liked. We'll get to the ones I hated next Christmas, I promise. Anyway, one of the key moments of that episode was where Angel Newman takes Eric to the seemingly distant year of 1983 to see how things are going on with his life at that point. Here are some highlights. Guys, I have discovered a band that will change music forever. And I ran, I ran so far away. I just ran, I ran all night and day. While the audience in the studio and at home ate up the notion of their favorite characters in a completely different decade other than the 70s, what they didn't know was that they were actually being witness to a stealth proof of concept. If you remember our seventh episode on ABC's 2020 pilot, you already know what a proof of concept is. For those who don't, it's sort of a litmus test that's presented to an audience of higher-ups in the hopes that whatever idea they have in the works would actually work when left to its own devices. In some cases, it's a TV pilot. In that 70s show's case, it was pretty much slipping through the back door. That episode turned out to be one of the most watched TV programs that aired in September of 2001, which stands to reason because after the attacks of 9-11, people were practically starving for some comfort content. Nevertheless, this gave Fox and the producers of that 70s show all the green lighting it would need to launch 
what many thought would be a spin-off to the big hit. Except not quite. Sure, most of the same production team involved with that 70s show would wind up being involved with this new series, though Bonnie Turner would actually pass on the project, leaving Terry Turner and Mark Brazil. But they did gain a new third wheel in this enterprise, someone who actually worked with them in previous episodes of the show, writer-producer Linda Wallum. But because the cast of the first show was already busy doing their own show, as well as a couple budding movie careers for some, it was almost a foregone conclusion that the newly formed team had to start fresh. New cast, new location, but the same basic formula with the hope that they can capture lightning in a bottle twice. In fact, it might have been a little too similar in trying to replicate. That 80s show pretty much tried to do what that 70s show did, but in a different enough way so that the characters at least attempted to maintain their own identities. For starters, you had our 80s version of Eric Foreman, named Corey Howard, a wannabe musician who, instead of living in Point Place, Wisconsin, spends his days in respectable San Diego, where he works at a local record store while dreaming of his big break. He would be played by a young Glenn Howerton, who I'm all but certain you know from AP Bio over on Peacock, but let's face it, I think it's pretty safe to say we all know him better for this. Damon! This, of course, among his many other sunny achievements he made while living in Philadelphia. In the place of the Donna character, somebody who's actually the inverse of her. A punk rocker who goes by the name Tuesday, though officially in the show, her first name is actually June. Tuesday is played by the future sister of Meredith Grey, Shyler Lee, and would probably receive almost instant recognition for playing Tuesday, thanks in part to the super spiked-up hairdo that she would sport in every episode. Let's just say for the purposes of audio versus visual aids, you can play a game of ring toss with it. Young Dennis Reynolds, uh, I mean, Corey, has a sister, Katie, played by Tinsley Grimes, who would turn out to be the inverse of Hyde, only instead of fighting authority, she would do so with more of a slant towards the environment while flunking out of college at the same time. Fulfilling the Fez requirement, Eddie Shin is Corey's best friend, Roger Park, who I gotta give the show credit for for not giving him offensive Asian stereotypes, and instead, they have him portrayed as your standard 80s yuppie. So I guess he also checks off the Jackie box considering he too wants to live the life of the rich. Our Kelso quota is portrayed by Brittany Daniel, who previously appeared on that 70s show as Eric's cousin. What kind of person would lie about something as serious as being adopted? A liar who specializes in adoption lies. You, a mean, vindictive person. Like someone who would trap someone in a revolving door? Yes! Oh. On this show, she portrays Corey's ex-girlfriend, Sophia, which, spoiler alert, we're gonna put a pin in for the moment because... Let's just say there's something that we need to get out of our system later on. Rounding out the cast are veteran comedian Margaret Smith as owner of the local record store. So since there doesn't seem to be a mother for Corey, either due to death, divorce, or budgetary reasons, I guess she's our de facto kitty in this case. <laughs> and finally, as our stand-in for Red Foreman, Corey's father, R.T. Howard, played by an actor who I'll always refer to as Diet Al Bundy thanks to his five years on Unhappily Ever After, Jeff Pearson. Oh yeah, that's it. More. Don't stop. 
and scene. I said Peterson, not Peterson. Oh, god damn, do I miss that robotically skeletal freak of nature. Naturally, like the 70s counterpart, everything seemed to be in its right place. And thanks to Fox hyping this show almost, if not more than the original 70s show, you would think that this would be knocked out of the park. But remember, this is Fox we're talking about here. A place where, at its worst, they often cancel shows at the drop of a hat and replace it with filler programming that has titles like World's Blankiest Blank, or at least they did back in the early part of the 21st century. Of course, now that the network is nearing 35 years of existence, it's pretty safe to say that most of their growing pains have exited their system by now. Too bad they still had some growing up to do, and this show will be part of the pain. We're gonna lay down some totally tubular torture! After the break... <laughs> Whatever you're doing, do it with WYNY. Live to the music. 97 WYNY FM. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives, the internet's premier place for a lot of nostalgia from the 80s, 90s, and even the present. And that includes some vintage commercials, like this. Whoa! Florida orange juice! Orange is smart for drinking orange juice for that clean and sunny taste. Hey, orange is smart. Been drinking orange juice, pure refreshment any place. Hey, orange is smart. For drinking to your body's content. The taste that only nature could invent. 100% pure from Florida. Hey, folks, orange is smart. Want to watch more retro goodies? Head to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives. Or you can follow him on Facebook, also at Dave's Archives. And now, let's take a look at some terrible television. January 23rd, 2002. A series of Taliban-related news items happened that are way too depressing to talk about here. The New England Patriots were actually seen as ragtag underdogs en route to that year's big football game. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, we're reintroduced to the world of the 1980s. You begin things in your typical dance club of the decade, where in the midst of people dressing up as Boy George and sporting those aerodynamically incorrect flock of seagull haircuts, we're first introduced to some of our characters. Oh wow, this is kind of awkward! You dancing with him, me dancing with her? No, it isn't! We broke up! Oh. Well, I wasn't really sure. I mean, you know, when you said you wanted to see other people, I didn't know that meant not me. <laughs> Well, at least the breakup seems to be on amicable terms. I mean, it's not like she had a much bigger reason to do so or anything, right? Anyway, we then see a random pair of yuppies invoking one of the many stereotypes of the yuppie way of life. Hey, is my nose bleeding? Nah, you're good. Because it wouldn't be the 1980s without casual coke use. So far, off to a great start. We go to the next day at home, where Diet Al Bundy tells his kids some bad news. Yeah, I've got some bad news myself. Kids, mother and I split up. 
That happened two years ago. You know, I just love saying it. Odd place to put in a laugh track, but not worthy enough to add to our awkward laugh track list from episode 17. So, let's continue. Boy, Sophia wasn't right for you. What with her being a lesbian and all. <laughs> Katie, she's not a lesbian. She's bisexual. She's like a vegetarian who likes turkey every now and then. Hold it! Okay, this is the part we put a pin in, and for good reason. Now, I want to be absolutely clear here before we go any further, that we in Telehell support 100% any and all LGBTQIA plus sign causes. In fact, one of my all-time favorite comedians, Dimitri Martin and I, happen to share a similar philosophy. I'm in a weird situation because I like rainbows, but I'm not gay. So I'll wear a rainbow on my shirt, but then under it I gotta put not gay. But I'm not against gay people, so then under that I gotta put but supportive. And with all that in mind, I know I gotta tread lightly with this kind of subject matter, especially for this particular show. You see, that 80s show premiered in January of 2002, a time when people were still reeling over a major terrorist attack while, at the same time, showing off only one kind of pride. American pride! And while the country was showing off its patriotism, the pride community was still facing a lot of scrutiny back then. Hell, the first same-sex marriage laws weren't even passed until December of that year, in the Netherlands of all places. It wouldn't be until a year later when civil unions would first be recognized in the state of Vermont. And there was still a long way to go. The whole point to all of this context is that most TV shows, at least back in 2002, didn't really know how to write for the Pride community. Sure, you had the exception of shows on premium cable like Six Feet Under, The L Word, or Queer as Folk doing it right, but for the rest of television, whenever a show included a character that was part of the Pride community, they never really gave the characters much in terms of dimension. All they did was say, I'm gay, and invoke just about every stereotype imaginable. Not like today, when portrayals of anybody in the community is more complex and dare I say, dare, dare, portrayed as normal human beings. Because everybody in the Pride community are normal human beings, no matter what they're labeled as or how they present themselves. And I know what you're thinking next. What about shows like Will and Grace? Well, yes, they did have characters where those of the Pride community managed to do so without invoking said stereotypes. Unfortunately for every Eric McCormick, you also had a Sean Hayes to tip the scales a little too far off balance. So, to be honest, even though a character on a TV show is bisexual and that seems perfectly fine in this day and age, in 2002, you may as well be waving one of those red flags that's hard to see while wearing rose-colored glasses. My apologies for soapboxing, but considering how sensitive the subject is then and now, I have a feeling this show is going to treat the matter in a less than dignified way. But hopefully I'm proven wrong here. Look, son, I know you feel lost. I have gone and turned a perfectly good woman into a lady golfer. <laughs> nope, nope, no, 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 nope. Still not throwing in the towel. It's still early in the episode. We still got a lot of plot to get through anyway. In the meantime, let's meet another yuppie in the form of Roger. So I know these are all power ties, but which one of these says, I will crush you in a hostile takeover? Burgundy. 
She's right. Well, they are in San Diego. I have a feeling Burgundy just might work. For all of us here at News Center 4, I'm Ron Burgundy. You stay classy, San Diego. Corey then drives Roger to his workplace, where we're treated to an homage to one of Hell's greatest gifts, the motivational seminar on tape. Thankfully, not recorded by Bob Patterson. By making a change in your destiny, <laughs> affirmation. I deserve success. I deserve success. Personal power and growth are tools. Personal power arsenal. and growth are tools. Ah, please, God, no more! After a somewhat creative title sequence that puts each of the cast members onto their own 80s homage on a record cover, we then head to the record store where Corey works. There, we meet manager Margaret. Where's your vinyl Richie section? <laughs> hmm, let me think. P-Q-R. Oh, yeah, it's up my butt. Okay, I think we may have found this show Silver Lightning. Love me some snark. Well, maybe it'll help with young Dennis Reynolds' woes. Well, I'm pretty sure my girlfriend dumped me for a woman. Happens. My music career is not a career. Happens. And my hip dad wants me to get in the game. And my mom stopped telling me what to do when I was 17. Of course, I was living with Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison is a god. A god who thought my breasts looked like mushrooms. <laughs> Why am I laughing at that? I just want to make music. You know, I'm 22 years old, for God's sake. I'm not ready to do the corporate droid thing. You know, as far as that corporate thing goes... I hear once you go dead inside, it's not so bad. I'm sure a young Tom York realized the same thing while writing Fitter Happier, but that's a different decade. We then get to meet our human ring toss game, Tuesday. And considering her punk leanings, I'm hoping she can add some additional snark to the proceedings. Punk rock rooster, 12 o'clock. Oh, Corey, that's the... Did you just make some small-minded middle-class comment about me, bud? <laughs> So when you go to the barber, what do you ask for? The Blue Lagoon? <laughs> what do you ask for? The Stegosaurus? <laughs> no, really, why am I laughing at this? This is supposed to be a flop, and yet there are two pillars of sarcasm that may or may not be lulling me into a false sense of security. Come on, there's gotta be something else here, right? Lafia! Hey! Corey's not here. That's okay. I just wanted to drop off his cassette. Come on, I said we go into this with an open mind. After all, they're just two women, one of whom is the sister to someone that the other woman just broke up with who happens to be bisexual. There's really not that many envelopes to push here. You'll both meet somebody. Actually, I did meet someone. Really? Well, what's he like? He's like a she. <laughs> and she's great. I can't stop thinking about her. Oh, cool. Well, I'm happy for you. Oh. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Okay, so that just happened in 1980s 2002. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. Yes. Yes, it was. At least back then it was. 
Nowadays, I'm sure it's par for the course. I knew you were trouble. First time I laid eyes on you. <laughs> okay, thanks for dropping by. <laughs> I'm just gonna let myself out. Uh, quickly moving on from something that I'm sure the Fox Network got a lot of letters for, we return to the record store, where Corey and Tuesday continue to force chemistry down our throats. Did you hear that? She's gonna fire you. Not me, I have seniority. You. Not me. I don't wear a bra. <laughs> Boys like to shop at stores that have girls that don't wear bras. I can find any record in this store. Nipples! When in doubt, do jokes at the other end of the sex spectrum. Or should that be sextrum? Oh, anyway, I see what the show is trying to do here with these two, because they tried to do it previously on the pilot of their other show. Of course, there's a stark difference between Eric and Donna and Corey and Tuesday. Eric and Donna practically knew each other for their entire lives. So when they had their first kiss in the 70s show pilot, there was as much comfort between the two as there was teenage awkwardness. Here, you have two people who barely know each other, and already they seem to be at each other's throats. Granted, we've seen many adversarial couplings on TV over the years. Sam and Diane from Cheers, I'm looking in your direction. But that kind of tension is built up slowly over time. Here, the producers and the writers fully expect the audience to simply buy into the notion that these two are meant to be together from minute one. And it's almost about as believable as there being a liberal Republican. Just then, Diet Al Bundy enters the store just in time to turn a joke about Tuesday's hair into a double entendre. How do you get it to stand up? How do you get it to stand up? Well, it wouldn't be a Fox show from the early 21st century without hooting and hollering at the drop of a hat. Uh, show him how it's done, real Al Bundy. How about this? Four weddings and a funeral. That's kind of like five of the same thing, isn't it? <laughs> After that bit of common denominationism, Corey tells the future star of Fox's Girls Club where to stick it. You're not punk. You're retro. See, punk was out six years ago, and I would know. I was at a Sex Pistols concert while you were listening to the Bay City Rollers in your Barbie jammies. I did like the Bay City Rollers. Act two begins with Corey, his wannabe Madonna sister, and the Eastern yuppie playing a game of Dynasty Shots. What are those? It's dynasty shots. You only do a shot when someone gets slapped. Yeah, if uh, that were the case, the nation's population from 1981 to 1989 would have cratered dramatically due to alcohol poisoning. Also of note, uh, wasn't there some sort of pride community subplot in here? Sophia stopped by today. Oh. Now that it's finally over, she's scared. It's all sinking in. She wants me back, right? Not exactly. She kissed me. <laughs> This is so hot! I think I'm just about ready for my own dynasty shots. Only I take a drink every time a poorly executed joke about the Pride community is made. She kissed you? It was just a kiss. Nothing happened. Besides the kiss. Did you just struggle at first, knowing it was forbidden? Then tongues, right? See, folks, this is exactly what I was worried about. The fact that they're treating people of the Pride community as mythological creatures instead of normal people. Okay, so a woman kissed another woman. 
That's fine. You don't need to clutch pearls, put a laugh track on it, and add more stigma at the same time. That's just being counterproductive. So for now, let's focus on something else. Yeah, well, RT offered me a job today. And you took it, right? I just don't know if I'd be very good at it. I, you know what? I am tired of being broke. Hell, I'm doing it. Yes. Yeah. Welcome to Reagan's America. God bless you, Ronnie. Well, I don't think you should be crediting me that much, and uh, why is it so hot down here anyway? At least California can reach as high as the 120s during my Death Valley days. And now that we got our obligatory Reagan joke out of the way, let's see exactly how 1980s marketing worked. Inspiration dust might have helped you there, Glenn. Just ask some of your Philadelphia friends. Yeah, but we need money to buy crack. Oh, oh I'm oh, sorry. Oh, then you get addicted to crack? Did somebody get addicted to crack? Oh, 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 oh I sweat uncontrollably. So much for 1980s marketing. Back to the dance club with another 80s reference. Guess where I am? Okay, we got another problem to address here. The reason why shows like Happy Days, The Wonder Years, and to a lesser extent, that 70s show worked for as long as it did was the fact that even though it took place during different eras of the time, any references they made to cultural touchstones of their respective eras were usually left in the background while the stories that were told did all the heavy lifting. Here, although there tends to be some semblance of plot lines here and there, they're jamming all the 80s references down our throats because, hell forbid, we forgot what the 80s looked like after falling asleep for a few hours, whether we actually lived through the decade or not. Truth be told, I was only five years old when the decade ended, so I honestly could care less what it looks like. Speaking of a lack of plot, Corey goes to the trouble of recapping exactly what we just saw several seconds ago just in case any laser pointers out there were too distracting to our attention spans. Well, I found my parking spot, uh, met a couple of really nice people, and uh, within four hours I was, uh, I was about ready to kill myself. What was I thinking? Help! After stating the blatantly obvious, we get another scene with bisexual Sophia as well as this pearl of wisdom from Roger, who tries to be empathetic, but instead lacks the letters E and M at the beginning of the word. Hi, Sophia. You know what? I think it's time I come clean with you. I go both ways, too. I understand your needs. After that exchange, which would then be followed by about three weeks of sensitivity training in this day and age, we continue to see what some TV writers considered normal human dialogue. Hi, Corey. How are you? Really? Well, I'm... Hi, Katie. <laughs> I'm just gonna drink my scotch while you hit on my sister. <laughs> Look, Katie, I want to apologize. I crossed the line, and I am truly, truly sorry. Can we just go back to being friends? Sure. And now we whiplash ourselves back to Diet Al Bundy's office, 
where young Dennis Reynolds puts his foot down. Hi, Dad. Would it be okay if I quit? Sure, son. Sure. <laughs> I'm gonna fire you anyway. <laughs> oh, come on. Even for a sitcom, that was deceptively easy. I would have expected some kind of grandstanding like his Always Sunny in Philadelphia character does. I've contained my rage for as long as possible, but I shall unleash my fury upon you like the crashing of a thousand waves! Be gone, vile man! Be gone from me! A starter car! This car is a finisher car! A transporter of gods! The golden god! I am untethered and my rage knows no bounds! Regardless... Corey gets his job back at the record store. We also catch up with the future visitor to Meredith Grey's coma fantasies, and we discover that the whole punk thing of hers may actually be a facade. Not to mention this exchange being a setup to the inevitable relationship this show will have to offer us. Hey, get off that. That's the owner's Harley. Yeah, I know. I work here. I'm Tuesday. Oh. Yeah, I took it down. Nice suit, suit. Yeah, okay, I'm wearing a suit because, you know, could you just admit that what I said made you take your hair down? Oh, look, you're so important to me that one little cutting remark from you made me change my whole image, Captain Corporate. Hey, good news. I gave up corporate life to come back here, you know, work for minimum wage, sell dusty records, piss you off. It is so funny that you think you have any effect on me whatsoever. See? You're pissed. Shut up! You know what? I think you want to have coffee with me. I was already going to go get coffee, okay? So if you want to be pathetic and follow me, whatever. Yeah, I feel like being pathetic. Good, because you are. <laughs> so what'd you use to uh, get your hair down? Blowtorch? Well, yes, I did. <laughs> hey, Margaret, we're leaving. And the Talking Heads song that plays at the end of the show kinda says it all. Only instead of worrying that this is neither a beautiful house nor wife, it's sort of secretly saying to us, This is not my beautiful that 70s show. And after that airing, the people watching slowly but surely realize the same thing. The show debuted with a respectable 12 million people watching, but as time marched on, the show would continue to lose more and more of its audience until ultimately bottoming out with only 4 million viewers tuning in by the end. And that 80s show was placed inside the Trapper Keeper of Bad Television by May of 2002. But in the words of Victor Lewis Smith, The critics were less kind. While there was some scattered positivities here and there, the most stinging takes include the Montreal Gazette saying it was, quote, nowhere near as funny or original as it could have been. While the San Francisco Examiner pointed out that the show, quote, would have been better if they didn't bank on the familiarity of the settings than actually focusing on developing the talent. Hell, years after the show was canceled, even Robot Chicken tried to warn us about wearing the nostalgia goggles too soon, with the cast of that 70s show, no less. Hi, I'm TV's Topher Grace. As you've seen tonight, the precious trappings of our material-obsessed existence become the sitcom fodder of the future. So hey, please remember, try not to be such a douchebag. Thanks for listening. So, where does that 80s show electric slide itself into telehell? You mess with the bull? You get the horns in our nine circles. Hey, if the show can do lazy 80s references, so can I. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. 
The best thing I can compare this show to is another maligned relic of the 1980s, that of New Coke. Coca-Cola's attempt to lure in customers by changing the formula that was familiar to so many for about a hundred years by that point. That 80s show was to New Coke what that 70s show was to Coke Classic. A pale duplication of the originator's own formula that tried to stay on brand, but was too different for the audience to realize what the more superior product was. People were such big fans of that 70s show that they pretty much expected that 80s show to be a continuation of the same story, when in actuality, it was a spin-off in name only, not unlike New Coke. People tuned in and became disappointed by what they saw. Even though none of the so-called parent show's original cast was involved, the writers and producers were, leaving a sense of heresy that the original product felt violated somehow. And because it tried to match the original formula but ultimately didn't, that same audience wound up crying fraud over what they saw. The continually decreasing ratings were proof of that. A fraud whose setting happened to take place in one of the greediest decades of all time. Isn't that right, Gordon Gecko? Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. And then you have the misfires in sexuality. Look, I don't want to belabor the point much more than I already have, but while it's still pretty progressive for a show to feature a bisexual character during a time when the Pride community was still seeking out acceptance, it was the way the character was executed over 13 episodes that was put into question. One's sexuality should not be a punchline. And yet, the show saw it fit to make it one in practically every episode, all in the hopes that sex sells. Not that there's anything wrong with it. The sum of which turned out to be a series of lustful misfires. And all because people thought the time was right for people to remember a time that probably didn't need to be remembered. At least, not yet, anyway. That 80s show earns four out of nine circles of telehell. But perhaps the most pointed indictment on the show came from the Calgary Herald, who proclaimed that the show needed to be at least 20 years away from itself in order for things to be laughed at, and that the show was put on too soon. A very valid point indeed, since the show took place in 1984, and it was developed as early as 2001. So, about 16 years or so, that is indeed kind of jumping the gun a little. Now. If the show was released, say, a little over 10 years later, and actual stars and writing telling came together, the show would not only be an accepted hit, but it would probably still be on the air today. Which it is. Back in the 80s, before Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Ooh, happy birthday! What do you want for breakfast? Privacy! Please. Don't forget to wash your bottom. You want that 80s show so bad? Turn to the Goldbergs on ABC. It's been on for so long now and done so much better than whatever the hell we just sat through was, that it wouldn't surprise me if people called it that 80s show unironically. Also, RIP to Pops, Mr. George Siegel. Of course, that's really more of a rose-colored glasses version of 80s nostalgia. If you ever want to take the goggles off, there really was only one TV show that aired, which one could argue could have been the real that 80s show were it not for the network that aired it and also severely mishandled it. In a recent LA Times poll, teens voted Freaks and Geeks most popular, relatable, funny, real, a wonderful hour for the family. Freaks and Geeks. 
the show that not only put Judd Apatow on the map, but also launched the careers of countless dozens, is probably the best encapsulation of what life was like in the 1980s better than anything that we've discussed here today. So much so that the program did for the 80s what the Wonder Years did for the late 60s and early 70s, and all without pandering too much to references for the sake of nostalgia. Find it on Amazon or at your local thrift store, love it forever, and then curse NBC for the fact that it only aired one season. Both of these shows are much better than what the Fox Network of 2002 thought the 80s was supposed to look like. And all because the rose-colored glasses may have been strapped on a little too tightly. You know, it's funny. When you look at someone through rose-colored glasses, all the red flags just look like flags. Next time on Telehell. It just goes to show you, it's always something. If it's not one thing, it's another. Either I come across a terrible TV movie about a comedy legend, or I have to drag two SNL fans down here in order to cover it. Cancer woman! Cancer woman! I am cancer woman! Yes, I am! And you are chemo dog! Her trusty chemo dog! Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds? Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. Podcast.